The following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Y'all sure? <laughs> How are we? Okay, all right, awesome, good, good. Um, so we are walking through um, the, we are making our way through the second part of uh, what will be a, an extended series um, called Lights On. And, and the reason we call it Lights On is because this is basically who we are as a church, what we're striving uh, to be as a church, what we're pursuing um, as a church. And we're walking through the biblical foundations for why we hold the things that we hold dear. So last week we talked about our mission, that we exist to shine the light of Christ through, uh, shine the light of Christ in the city of Vicksburg through the transformed lives of his people. Shine the light of Christ in the city of Vicksburg through the transformed lives of his people. And so we walked last week through Matthew chapter 5 to kind of unpack biblically why that's our mission, why we hold that dear, and why we pursue that with reckless energy. Now, today we're going to talk a little bit about our values. We're going to begin to unpack our six values. Uh, Pastor, Pastor C, Pastor Corey unpack, uh, started sharing with you guys uh, earlier a few moments ago about those six values, and we want to unpack them now each and every single week. We're going to spend two weeks actually unpacking Christ-centeredness. This week, uh, Palm Sunday, and then next week, Easter Sunday, we're going to talk a little bit about why is Christ the center of everything that we do. And, and then from there on out, we're going to unpack the rest of them week by week in a very deliberate, very uh, detailed form so that hopefully everybody that's with us and everybody that's visiting with us will all be on the same page going forward as a church. And while I'm saying that, let me again welcome the folks that have came and joined us as visitors. Thank you guys for coming. Um, as, as Pastor Corey said, y'all could have jumped on any plane this morning, but you jumped on our plane. So we, we appreciate that. And we hope that you are experiencing not only the, the love of Christ, but that you will hear in this, in this moment, in this hour, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 is where we are. Let me just start by asking the question, what does it mean to be Christ-centered? What does it mean to be Christ-centered? Christ-centered at City Light, I'll tell you what it means at City Light. It means to live our lives in such a way that reflects that Jesus Christ, I got a little brain um, broken. You, can you see that? Because I know that will irritate folks throughout, throughout service. So um, Christ-centered at City Light means to live our lives in such a way that reflects Christ is the king of everything. To live our lives in such a way that reflects Christ is the king of everything. Our actions, our words, our sermons, our activities should all point to the truth that Christ is at the center of it all. And Colossians chapter 1 is a beautifully written text about Christ-centeredness. Some consider it a poem. Um, um, they, the, the way that it is constructed and the way it, it uses, it seems to use poetic language. But, but, but others even think that it could have possibly been one of the early church's songs. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And so some see it as a poem, others see it as a hymn, but... We, we don't know what it is actually for sure, but, but the one thing that we do know is that, is that it is Christ 
centered. And it is showing us that Christ-centeredness is not simply a goal to be pursued, but it is a truth to be acknowledged. Christ-centeredness is not just simply a goal to be pursued. It is a truth to be acknowledged. Whether you want to be Christ-centered or not, right? Whether you want to acknowledge that Christ is the center of everything or not, it does not matter. We can state it as a value, and we can try to pursue to walk in it, but let me tell you something. Regardless of whether we walk in it or not, Christ is still the center of everything. And that's what Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 23 shows us, is that Christ is, whether we acknowledge it or not, at the center of everything. This passage of scripture shows us that Christ is at the center of all creation, but it shows us that also Christ is at the center of the new creation, and then it shows us that Christ is at the center of our salvation. All creation, he's at the center of. The new creation, he's at the center of. And our salvation, he's at the center of. Let's start with all creation. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In this text, we see a lot of different things. In this passage, we see a lot of different things. The first thing we see is that he is the God of creation, or he is, that, he is the God over creation. He is not just like God, or he is not even simply similar to God. He is, as the early theologians play, uh, put it, he is very God of very God. He contains the same essence. He contains the same substance. Christ is God. One of the original followers of Jesus and, and, and one of the uh, uh, four author or one of the authors of the four gospels, the apostle John, wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was there with God the Father. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This is chapter 1 of John. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, and the Word became flesh. So this Word that was with God, this Word that was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And who was that? Jesus, the Word incarnate. He is God. Even Jesus himself in that same exact gospel said about himself that before Abraham ever existed, and Abraham existed thousands of years before Jesus was incarnate and dwelt among men. He says before Abraham existed, before Abraham was, I am. Meaning that I existed before even, before even the greatest of our patriarchs. I existed before the greatest of our fathers. Those that we hold in great renown and those that we hold dear, I existed before them. And not only did I exist before them, I created them. Many testify that Jesus was a good man. But that's not accurate. He was not simply a good man. He was God. And the Apostle Paul shares this testimony in chapter 1 of Colossians. He is God over creation and he is king over creation. Paul also describes him as the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn being a word that means more than simply being the first to be created. As a matter of fact, it doesn't even mean that. 
Firstborn refers to a place. Firstborn refers to a position. Firstborn refers to a calling, if you will. One place that you see this actually, actually the word serving this purpose is in the book of Psalms. In Psalms 89, verse 20 through 27, it says that I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil, and I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. Verse 22 says the enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him and in my name shall his horn be exalted and then it says I will set his hand on the sea and on his right hand and his right hand on the rivers he shall cry to me you are my father my God and the rock of my salvation listen and I will make him talking about King David the firstborn was he the first king ever was he no I will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth you hear that what does that mean? It's talking about position. In other words, I will make David the king above all the other kings that came after and that came before. Does that make sense? So when you're talking about the firstborn of creation, you're talking about a position that Jesus has over creation. He is the supreme over creation. He is the exalted over creation. He is the king over creation. Does that make sense? But not only is he the king, not only is the God, not only is he God, but he is the source of creation. For by him, it continues uh, in Colossians 1, for by him all things were created. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Nothing in the universe carries, ex carries its existence apart from Jesus. Nothing in the universe carries its existence apart from Jesus. Every insect, every animal, every person, every rock, every drop of ocean water, every species in the ocean has its existence through Jesus. Scientists say that we have about one million species, at least one million species that we know of in the ocean. And that we believe that there may be even another eight to nine million more that we have not discovered yet. And every single one of them, the nine to ten million species that exist in the oceans of this earth, all hold their existence in and through Jesus. But his creative power extends over into authorities as well, and not just regular, you know, regular Joes like you and I, but authorities, natural authorities. He says that, that in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So the most powerful men and women to ever live and walk the face of this earth have their existence in him. Pharaoh, Caesar, Napoleon, Tupac. I just threw that one in there. See if y'all paying attention. Nevertheless, every single one of them hold their existence through Jesus. Does that make sense? No authority exists beyond him and thus should never be considered to be placed above him. Do you understand that? Because no authority exists beyond him, we should never ever consider to place any of them above him. 
It would be a fool's errand to try to say that somebody is more important than him when he was the one who created them. But as he's writing to the Colossians, you have to understand that their minds would have went to the authorities even more transcendent than natural authorities. Their minds would have went to the supernatural authorities. The Colossians were fearful of supernatural powers and the need to please certain gods and, and, and make sure that other gods were not pleased. And so as Paul is uh, writing or as Paul is speaking this poem, he is thinking about putting their minds at ease, saying even those things that you fear have influence over your life. If they exist, some of them don't, but if they exist, they exist through him. He has authority over all of them. You don't have to fear them. You understand? Yeah. You know, a lot of times we watch these horror movies, right? Religious horror. I'm, I'm a scary movie fan. I'm sorry. I, I admit, don't judge me. I'm a scary movie fan, right? And so, and so when you watch these scary movies, a lot of times there's this kind of, you know, religious element to it where the demon, right, or the monster or whatever is like taking over somebody and, and there's like this battle between the demon, the darkness, and the light, God, right? And it's like a tug of war. Ah, I'm not getting, I'm not coming out, you know, this, and, 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 and the person's like, yes, you are coming out. And it's like, no, I'm not coming out. And, and, we, get, and we get this image that, that, that this is kind of like how the cosmos work, that there's this duality, that there's this tug of war, God and evil, and God's like, mm, I'm trying to get him, but I can't. That's not how it works, folks. Amen. Go back to the Gospels. Go back to the Gospels. Jesus steps on the scene, and demons are there. The demons are like, wait a second. <laughs> we thought you were coming later on. <laughs> That's the response, right? Look, look at the Gospels. It's like, did you come here to punish us before our time? What are you doing here? We thought we could, we thought we could continue our chaos a little longer. We didn't know you would be here. Does that make sense? Because there is no duality in the cosmos. He rules over it all. But not only is he the source of creation, he's also the object of creation. All things were created through him and for him. Not only is he the source but he's the object. We are created by Christ, and we are created for Christ. He's the object of creation for his purposes, for his delight, but above all things, for his glory. Have you ever tried using, or have you ever tried driving a nail into the wall with a screwdriver? Anybody ever tried that? Again, don't judge me, all right? Didn't have a hammer. So, so didn't have a hammer, so I'm trying to drive it in, right? And eventually, maybe I make some progress. I get about one millimeter or something like that in, along the way. And, and, and finally, I realize that, okay, I'm not going to probably get very far with this. I better go find a hammer. Anybody ever, ever, anybody ever did that besides me? Well, here's the thing. The screwdriver doesn't have much, much success because it wasn't built for it. There's a purpose for the screwdriver, and it serves its purpose well. There's a purpose for the hammer, and it serves its purpose well. well. Let me tell you something. There's a purpose for us. But when we rebel against that purpose, we're kicking our foot against the pricks. We're making, we're making life far more difficult than what it needs to be. You were built 
for him. And where, and, and where you will find joy, where you will find satisfaction, where you will find delight. And I'm not talking about this temporary, momentary delight, but eternal delight, eternal joy, eternal satisfaction. Where will you find it? You will find it in him because you were created for him. Again, Christ's sinfulness is not simply a statement to be made, but it is a truth to be acknowledged. Whether you want to embrace it or not, he is at the center of everything. And if we, and if we don't put him at our center, life won't be right. He's also the sustainer of creation, verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. J.B. Lightfoot once said that Christ is the one who makes creation a cosmos instead of a chaos. Not only does Christ keep the world from falling apart as a result of earthquakes, floods, plagues, cosmic disturbances, he maintains a check on the awful workings of the demonic powers, end quote. We are often prone to call God's existence into question, aren't we? Or even his power into doubt. When those, when those momentary afflictions strike us, when those momentary afflictions strike our home, when those momentary afflictions strike our society, whether a young man is shot and, and, and he was a, maybe he was a promising uh, young scholar or a promising young athlete, he looked like he was going to escape and get out, get, out of, get, out of the, you know, get out of the hole and make his way out and, and go and be something and go and make the community proud and then somebody snipes his life right from him. And we say, what in the world's going on? Or when Hurricane Katrina comes and just and, and, and devastates some of our communities down south. And we're like, what in the world is going on? Where, where is God in all of this? Or when a plane crashes, or, or when these young children in Syria are bombed, and we're saying, what in the world is going on? Where is God in all of this? All of these things are tragic. But they can cause us to miss how God is keeping us if we're not careful. I don't want to, I don't, please don't hear me as trying to, trying to belittle or undermine genuine hurt. I'm not, I don't want you to hear it that way. This is what I want you to hear it as. For the one plane that crashes, it's said that literally a hundred thousand planes a day take flight. A hundred thousand across the world a day that don't crash for the drunk driver that rams into one of our beautiful children there are 1.2 billion cars that leave home every single day around the world and do not crash think about the many storms that you and I have even experienced even in this city that misses us by an inch and we say whoa Thank you, Lord. How many times have you found yourself in a near miss or in a car and you or fallen asleep on the road? Listen, there have been times I have fallen asleep on the road and somehow ended up at home. I don't even remember how I got home. I'm like, man, what am I doing? What am I doing here? How did I get here? Did we realize the wonder of God in those moments? So that we can be mindful in the moments that things don't go our way to still trust him. To still recognize that he is sustaining this universe. Even in moments where we don't understand. 
Do you realize the wonder of God when you consider that if we just moved a little bit faster in our orbit, this earth, or a little bit slower in our orbit in this earth, we would all cease to exist. Just a little bit faster. Not even really, not, not, not a big push in momentum, just a slight push in momentum. That if we move one degree to the left in our orbit or one degree to the right in our orbit, we would either burn to death or freeze to death. That, that, our, that our, the composition of our air is so finely tuned that you can mess with it just slightly and life would cease to exist or be sustained in this universe or in this earth. All of these things are products of God's sustaining and keeping power over us. He is there. He is there. And he cares for us. Christ is at the center of the new creation. Christ is at the center of the new creation, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Paul continues to highlight the greatness of Jesus by showing that it extends not just to the first creation, but to the second creation. Acknowledging Christ-centeredness means that we not only see him as being at the center of the world, past, present, and future, but we see him as being at the center of the church. Now, that probably feels natural to say, right? Of course he's at the center of the church. Of course he's at the center of the church, right? Why do we even need to say that? I mean, come on, man. Y'all go to church. You know why we need to say that. I know sometimes maybe, maybe, maybe it doesn't feel like we need to say that, but of course we need to say that. Of course Paul's need, Paul needs to remind us that Christ is at the center of the first creation and at the center of the new creation. Paul calls him the head of the church. Verse 18, he is the head of the body. There is no other head of the church but Christ. Even the leadership and the shepherds, the pastors and the elders that are subject to, subject to lead and shepherd the people of God or, or, or that are called to lead and shepherd the people of God are called to do so, right? Being subject to the shepherding and leadership of Jesus Christ. Meaning that they cannot simply lead how they want to lead, but they must lead as Christ instructs them to lead. 1 Peter chapter 5 communicates this challenge. It says this, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Not domineering over those in your charge. You know why? Because you're not their shepherd ultimately. God is. Not lording over them because you're not their shepherd. God is ultimately. So that when the chief shepherd appears, he won't look at you and say, what you been doing with my sheep? That's a slang version. 
The church is not an arm here to accomplish any person's particular will. It is a vehicle created to accomplish the will of God. So even as we plunge into Christian leadership, both formally and informally, we always have to be asking ourselves, am I evaluating leadership through my own desires, my own expectations, or am I evaluating them through his? He's the start of the church. It says he is the beginning, verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. At the front of the church is Jesus Christ, and without him we have no church. He's the start. He's where it begins. He's where it kicks off. Paul declares Christ the firstborn from the dead. Again, not meaning merely the first to be raised, but the greatest of them to be raised. So the greatest of them that have been brought from death to life. The church is a group of people that have been brought from death to life. And at its center, its source, and its fuel is Jesus. So that even in life and even in death, Christ remains supreme. The resurrection that we enjoy, this newness of life, this new creation that we enjoy comes through Jesus and it doesn't come any other way. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says that we were baptized into Christ's death so that we might be what? Raised into his life. We enjoy resurrection life only because of Jesus' resurrection. He is the resurrection. As a matter of fact, that's what he calls, he says about himself, I am the resurrection. To gather together under any other understanding is to gather under false pretense. And to gather as something else, or, or, or not only gather under false pretense, but to gather as something else other than the church. A church who no longer acknowledges the divine nature of Christ, his sovereign authority over us, his resurrection power working through us, is forfeiting its privilege to be called one. You understand? If we just walk, if we just, if we just make Jesus about being a good man, and we miss his divinity, we miss his resurrection, we miss God in the flesh, and we no longer are operating as a church. We are operating as a social club that just so happens to gather on Sunday mornings. Christ is the reconciler of the church. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The nature of reconciliation is the idea of transferring one, transferring a thing from one state to an entirely, completely different state that looks nothing like the previous state in which it was in. That's what reconciliation is. When, when, and so in other words, in relationships, reconciliation is, is, is taking a thing from one status of relationship to an entirely different status of relationship, or in the case of creation, moving creation from enemy and cursed ones to friends and favorite ones. And he is at the center of creation. We've established that. But creation has been stained by sin. Creation has been marred by sin. 
changing the relationship status of creation to its God from friend to enemy. So now we must lean on Christ, the reconciler of all things, the restorer of all things, to bring our relationship status with our holy God from enemy to friend. He's at the center of that. I mean, he's at the center of all creation, so it only makes sense that he's at the center of creation's reconciliation, right? And as a product, he is reconciling man to God and, listen, man to man. In fact, this word reconcile, it's only used, this particular way in which, it's, in which it is translated in the Greek, it's only used three times in the New Testament. Two times is in this text, Colossians 1, and then the other time is in uh, Ephesians 2. And when it's, when it's used in Ephesians 2, it's used this way, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in, orders in, in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in body, in one body, through the cross. What does that mean? He's saying that reconciliation is not just a you and God thing, but reconciliation is a you and God thing and an us and God thing. He's not only just bringing you to him, but he's bringing you to one another, and then from you to one another, he's bringing us to him. One body going back to God. That's what reconciliation is. It is the restore, it's, it's the restoration of not just our, our, our relationship with God, but our relationship with one another. It's universal unity. Hashtag. The first, think about, think about it in this way. The first major act of rebellion was severance of relationship between God and man, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. But think about the immediate second and third acts. Adam and Eve in the garden, and immediately after God confronts Adam and Eve. Now they're, now they're hey, hey, no, 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 it's the woman you gave me, right? So now, so now there's beef between them. And then they have kids, right? They have kids. And, and, and what do we see? What's the, first, what's the next act of, re of rebellion? Two kids, two brothers, one murders the other. So the, so, the rec, so the restoration is not just simply us and God. The restoration is us and God and us and us. Does that make sense? That's why God says you can't love me if you don't love your brother. That's why he also says that the first commandment is to love your Lord with all your heart, soul, and might, your strength. And do what? Second commandment is just like the first. Do what? Love neighbor. Because he's reconciling and restoring not just relationships between him and us. He's reconciling and restoring relationships between us and us. So in Vicksburg, Mississippi, that would look like black folk and white folk. Amen? He's reconciling and restoring those relationships as well as the vertical relationship. The scope of restoration is that all things are being restored. Because all things center on Christ, then all things are being restored, whether they're in heaven or on earth. In fact, only Christ himself is capable of restoring and repairing the creation that was destroyed. For in him, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself. In other words, he holds the capacity to restore because in him is the very fullness of God. Nobody else can do it. 
Nobody else can do this. Are you kidding me? Putting black people and white people together? Nobody else can do it. Not long term, not through eternity. I mean, we can come together and sing a song every once in a while, but through eternity? It has to be God. He's the only one with the capacity to do it. And not only the capacity to bring us together, but the capacity to restore our relationship with a holy God without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. But how does he do it? The scripture says he does it by making peace with the cross or making peace by the blood of the cross. So he restores peace, listen, to the whole universe. He restores peace to the whole universe on a tree. On a tree. Blood being spilled. And he restores the cosmos. Not just, not just what's happening here, but what's happening in, in, in places that we don't even know about. He restores it all on a tree. Lastly, Christ is at the center of your salvation. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, steadfast, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. I want you to think about that for a second, folks. The center of all creation. The object of creation. The source of creation. The God of creation. The king of creation. The reconciler of creation. The head of creation. The start of creation. Is mindful of you. is mindful of you. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's us, that's all of us. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And you, and me, and us, he was mindful of you, mindful of me, in such a way that he restored relationship with us. Though we were alienated, separated from him, though we were not only alienated, but we were hostile, right? So it doesn't just simply mean separate, but it's separated and against doing evil deeds. He was mindful of you, mindful of me, mindful of us. That he would die for you. That he would die for you. And not only mindful of you that he would die for you, but mindful of you that he would die for you and present you. Now understand this, present you holy, present you blameless, present you above reproach. Well, we don't, we don't need a pop quiz to answer the question, is anybody in this room 
based on their own merit, holy, blameless, and above reproach. We don't need a pop quiz. We're not. None of us are. Our faults are many. Our sin is great. Are you tracking with that? Some of y'all took everything to just hold it together and not, and not just slap one of your kids silly before you came here. Are you tracking? Our faults are many. Our flaws are many. And yet, this God who created everything and who keeps everything and, and, and who's the source and the object of everything is mindful of you enough to die for you and to present you blameless, holy, not based on your own merit, but based on the merit of his blood. He said, mindful of you as long as you remain by faith, mindful of him. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister, mindful of you as long as you remain mindful of him by faith. In other words, simply put, keeping Christ's. Trusting him with your life. When you think about the God that we're speaking of, why would we trust anybody else? Does it make sense? Heck, why would you trust yourself? When you think about the God, when you think about the God that we're, we're talking about, why would you trust yourself with your life? Trust him with it. Trust him with it. Lean on to him. Thrust yourself at the feet of the cross and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I failed you in a myriad of ways, and I will fail you in, a, in many more. But Lord, will you take me? Will you take me? Take me as your own. I trust you with my life. I repent of my sin. I turn from my old ways, and I turn to your way. I want to walk with you. Why would you trust anybody or anything else? Why would you trust in riches when you have this? Trust in him. Acknowledge him as the sinner that he already is. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you. We give you praise and glory and honor for your goodness towards us. We are so thankful that we have the opportunity, Lord God, to acknowledge you as the center of our life. We we, 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 Lord God, know that, that there is nothing in us that, that, that makes us righteous before you, that it is all in you. And so, Lord God, we pray that if there's anyone in this room who has yet to trust you with their lives, who has yet to lay their lives down at your altar and say, Lord, take me as I am. Take me as I am. I want to walk with you. If there's anyone who has not done that, Lord God, would you move them to do that, Lord? Would you move them now by your spirit to do that, Lord? Because there is no other decision, Lord. We were created for this. We were built for this, to be your children. And so in that, there's safety. And in that, there's joy. And in that, there's delight, Lord. And so, and so please, Lord God, make it clear. Make it plain 
for someone in this room. And for those that are struggling, that are, that are, that are living out this faith, Lord God, but that are struggling, that are hanging on by the thread, Lord, would you encourage them by your spirit? Would you strengthen them by your spirit to remain steadfast in you? I know, I know, Lord God, the heartache and the hurt and the pain is great in this room. We have seen suffering. We have experienced suffering, Lord God. But would you remind us that you are the sustainer of the universe, that you are mindful of us, that you care for us, and that you died for us. And would you encourage souls in this room today to continue to hold steadfast and stable? Lord, we love you. We thank you. These things we ask and we pray. In your son Christ's name, amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.